welcome everybody to the latest episode of Media Sandwich, a podcast where we talk about media and sandwiches. You would think. <laughs> That's not exactly what we do. I mean, hey, we have the odd sandwich uh, discussion hanging out around here, but mostly we talk about the world of entertainment, uh, movies, video games, comic books, vid- video games again, why not? Uh <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just kind of skim the headlines of what's going on in the news of those uh, particular fields, those industries. So let's get right to it with uh, what we always start out with, the video games. And I, oh, oh boy. Boy, I tell you what. In my day, video game websites would write about video games. Reviews, previews, listicles, that's your basic list article like a ranking of every Mega Man game. Yep. These kids today they're they're just all about <laughs> they're all about writing about The Last of Us, uh the television show. And that's cool. I get it. It's the big thing happening this week, but it's really irritating to look for video game industry news to talk about on your podcast. And the main headline for every single site is Look at this TV show! Let's compare this TV show meticulously to the video game it's based on. Um, hey, guess what? It's not going to be like the game. Not in every way. It just doesn't work that way. The pacing is going to be changed. The characters will be changed. The storytelling is going to be changed. Pedro Pascal is not going to do the exact correct motions that his character does during his reload animation. It just doesn't work that way, friends. Uh, there. That's pretty much the next month and a half of articles summed up for you right there. Thanks a lot, Polygon. Uh, <laughs> but hey, in actual video game news, you want to talk about actual video game news and not just the successful TV shows based on it? Because uh, we've got that. Microsoft, despite having like a really, really good fiscal showing for 2022... Uh, how good? Uh, to the tune of $198 billion in revenue, $83 billion in operating income. Uh, yeah, despite that, they decided to take a sweeping scythe at all of their people. They laid off 10,000 people. That's so many people. Uh, many of whom were working for 343 Industries, uh, the studio... Behind the Halo franchise, they're the the keepers of that particular flame. Uh, Apparently, Halo Infinite did not meet certain expectations with the higher-ups at Microsoft. Uh, Those that did get axed, they were pretty quick to point out, no, this was really a leadership problem with the higher-ups at Microsoft. They they got into bed this year not really knowing uh, which way they wanted to turn, and... Yeah, I mean, like, basically there was a failure to deliver stuff like seasonal updates and new content for Halo Infinite. I mean, look, it's a new open-world service-based shape that Halo has taken, so there was going to be some growing pains, there was going to be some changing of the guard in terms of what was expected out of 343 after the game's launch, I mean hey, this is what happens when you launch a game like that. Hmm. I think a lot of this could have been avoided if you would just make a game with a beginning, a middle, and an end, finish the fucker, and then make sure it's finished. Because <laughs> sometimes they finish it without making sure it's finished. Uh, and then ship it. 
and then that's the end of it, and then you move on to the next game. But, you know, what do I know? I'm just, you know, somebody who's been consuming these things for couple decades uh i know what i like and what i like is not a forever game that shit is driving me nuts and it seems like it might be driving developers nuts and studios nuts because it's a lot harder to maintain and generate new content for it while still you know driving that expectation of newness home every quarter of a fiscal year or something like that but again i don't know my ass from a hole in the ground apparently uh, this led to a lot of speculation that 343 might not be handling the franchise anymore. Like, there was whispers that they might take on more of a supervisory role to other studios who would actually be developing further Halo adventures. So get this, 343 actually had to say on Twitter the other day, Don't worry, Master Chief is here to stay. 343 will continue to develop Halo games now and in the future. That's it. That was the whole statement. Um, you know, it's a real, like, uh, questions about my t-shirt are already uh, answered by my t-shirt kind of thing. Like, you really wouldn't have to say any of that if it wasn't all totally in question. And also, not for nothing, that statement doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't mean that other studios won't be taking on some new Halo content, which, I mean, that's fine with me. It might actually be just what the franchise needs, I know that Halo Wars isn't exactly a lot of fans' cup of tea, but I was really excited back in the day when they first dropped that one because, look, that's the kind of consumer I am. I appreciate bold pushes in new directions, even when they fail, because sometimes they don't fail and they yield absolute gold, and I don't consider Halo Infinite a bold push in a new direction. I consider it a long-form plan for, like, you know stagnation it's it's a way to it's a way to not make new content and still get the same amount of money every year and i think that that's crappy and anytime a company has to say publicly don't worry we're going to keep doing the thing that you only know us because we do that thing that's typically a sign that maybe either they shouldn't be doing that same thing anymore or maybe they should just like try to do that thing and some other things differently if they have the capacity for it. And if they don't, bring somebody else in. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be the w this way. Uh, it doesn't have to be one monolithic company doing everything contrary to what Microsoft thinks. Anyways, and other news <laughs> video game wise. Um, also kind of a sad thing. Well, I guess it depends on who you're asking. Uh, Crystal Dynamics confirmed that Marvel's The Avengers has ended any further development. They are shutting down. They are shuttering. Uh, there's one last update, uh, update 2.8, which is coming on March 31st, and then that's it. Online support will end for the game on September 30th, 2023. Um, after March 31st, though, all the store content, all of the marketplace stuff, for Avengers, uh, the outfits, the takedowns that you can purchase and whatnot, all the microtransaction shit will become free. So if you avoided this game like the plague because it seemed like less like a complete and well-made game and more like a Goshapon machine, like a really expensive Goshapon machine, well, 
at least before they remove the Gashapon machine from, from, you know, the corner of the store, they'll hand you a stack of plug quarters and let you go nuts. Um, yeah. They did point out that the game will be available, playable, even multiplayer will be usable pretty much, like, indefinitely. Don't worry about that, uh, you five or so people who might still be playing Avengers. Uh, it's just the ongoing content and marketplace stuff uh that they're letting go of because you know it didn't do a whole lot it didn't do very well and hilariously they did have to mention in the announcement that spider-man will only ever be a sony exclusive for that game don't worry about that you're not gonna get spider-man for free if you bought it on the xbox (laughs) damn it yet another reason i need to get a ps4 or a ps5 so that i can buy a copy of marvel's avengers for two dollars at gamestop and play as Spider-Man, I guess. Anyways, pour one out for a probably totally fine game that, in fact, didn't just die just now. It died on the vine two years ago because of the greedy nonsense that made it, you know, basically a very expensive mobile grind game. That's pretty much what we're dealing with here. But anyway, moving right along, Fozzie. Uh, There is plenty of good stuff and bad stuff happening in the movie industry this last week. Uh, Talking about the good stuff, uh, all of those March movies that I went gaga over a few weeks ago, they're all getting their final or their full trailers, so we're seeing a little bit more of those movies. That Dungeons & Dragons movie, uh, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, (sighs) kind of a clunky title, but okay, Uh, it got a new trailer just the other day. While the first trailer basically hangs the whole movie's hat on, hey, it's Chris Pine. Don't you like Chris Pine? Wouldn't you love to see Chris Pine in a movie again? A movie that's not Don't Worry Darling? (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, this this new trailer is really ramping up the Guardians of the Galaxy of it all. The comparison, like, first of all, the whole trailer is set to Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, which... Eh, I mean, okay, that was very expensive of you to shell out for a Led Zeppelin song, so I guess I have to give you that. Um, It's also, this trailer showing off the ensemble cast quite a bit more. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez gets uh, some kind of grappling fighting scene highlighted in the trailer. Justice Smith, who you might remember from Detective Pikachu and also uh, Jurassic World... (laughs) <laughs> what are the, uh, fallen kingdom he was in fallen kingdom as a main character uh and then i think he shows up for maybe a scene in dominion uh but yeah justice smith he is clearly the nebbish like comic relief uh like sorcerer in training kind of character which yeah not much of a stretch for him to be kind of the the whiny guy who's gonna scream and run away from a giant monster a giant reptilian monster uh <laughs> he was actually okay in that jurassic world movie uh as far as things in that movie that pissed me off he was not one but uh hugh grant is hanging out uh looks like he might be like some kind of highfalutin royal type who's you know gonna hire them or something i don't know uh we got the reveal of the main villain in the trailer it's the red wizard so it's not vecna which Yeah, I mean, after Stranger Things 4, I guess it really can't be, can it? That show kind of stole Dungeons & Dragons' lunch, didn't it? Uh, 
also we do see some dragons in this trailer and the dragons look oddly cartoony to me like purposefully designed to look kind of cartoony what do i mean by cartoony i mean kind of like the dragon from shrek a little bit around the eyes it was weird it was weird to see that it was weird to see a very cartoon dragon rendered to the point where it's supposed to look realistic it's like two things that just don't really compute to me but hey i'm intrigued at least by this movie there's a possibility that it might be a whole lot of fun especially for me i'm very easily taken on these kinds of things so i'll go see that that sounds like a real good i'm just gonna take the day off and go to a matinee kind of movie uh we also uh, recently since last time we talked we got a new scream 6 trailer uh, a little more beefed up trailer. Uh, that first teaser on the subway, really good teaser. The trailer showing a little, I mean, it's a horror movie, so the trailer kind of has to show a little too much of the movie. But yeah, like it's got this whole attack in a New York bodega. So they're they're going very New York with this one. It's uh, could be fun. Everyone online got so up in arms about Ghostface wielding this pump-action shotgun in this trailer. And I don't get why. Like, first off, if you watch the trailer, he clearly picks this shotgun off of an unfortunate victim who might possibly be a dude who's trying to rob the bodega or something like that. I can't remember. But there was an actual honest-to-goodness online. There was a, hey, what is this crap? Ghostface doesn't use guns. And... (laughs) I mean, I think y'all are thinking of Batman? Uh, Ghostface uses guns in literally every movie. Every Scream movie ends. Usually the killer is unmasked, and then they're threatening everybody with a gun. It happens at least in the first three, possibly the... I don't remember the fourth one that well. It's definitely going on in that fifth one, so I don't see what everybody's pissed off about with that, but... The other uh, bit of the new trailer that's very nice that everybody was a little excited for, Hayden Panettiere's character Kirby is back from Scream 4. Um, Yeah, she's a real fan favorite, so despite that movie, spoilers for Scream 4, which is from 2011, so if you haven't seen it by now, Jesus. um, Yeah, they killed her off in that movie, in what was pretty much the big dramatic reveal of the movie, and despite that, she's back. Actually, if you were eagle-eyed enough while watching last year's Scream 5, you'll see that she was the guest who was about to be interviewed on the Stab Fan uh, YouTube channel that's featured in that one. So they've been planning to have her back for a bit. That's They've wanted her back since they realized, oh crap, she's the best character from 4 by a country mile. At least the best one who doesn't get killed, even though she did. Uh, anyways... What better time to bring her back than now when Nev Campbell decided not to come back because they wouldn't pay her what she's worth? Hopefully they're paying Hayden Panettiere what she's worth. I'm not one to speculate on what the gap is between what Hayden Panettiere cost and what Nev Campbell cost, but I am going to speculate that there is a gap. Uh, But I I like Hayden Panettiere. uh, She got a lot of shit back in the day, like during, like during the heroes and immediate post heroes days, uh, she caught a lot of shit, but I always thought she was kind of, kind of fun. She was kind of good. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, here's another, uh, piece of news. I'm not actually sure if I touched on this or not previously, but 
We did mention previously that Avatar The Last Airbender animated theatrical movie series that they keep teasing us with. Avatar Studios is like, we're going to do an animated movie, and it's going to be a feature film that's going to be in theaters, and it's coming in like 2025. And I'm like, ooh, that seems risky to me. Uh, I hope that it does really well, because I love Avatar The Last Airbender, but that doesn't seem like it's going to have a lot of mainstream appeal unless you start the marketing push about now. Uh, but anyway, they keep teasing us with not just that, that they're going to do a whole, like, three-movie arc. And I thought I saw something the other day about how the second movie... We know the first movie is going to focus on Aang and his immediate buddies as they're like young adults, like putting the world back together after the war. Uh, but the second movie apparently is going to be focused on Zuko. And I seem to remember them saying that it would come sometime around 2026, 2027. And that seems so long from now when really it's actually not, especially when talking about animated movies. But Boy, I'm a little nervous, because last time a theatrical Last Airbender movie promised me a sequel, we didn't get one, because... Uh, because that first movie wasn't very good, but also because the true master of all four elements is the box office numbers. Uh, but hey, sidebar, and really the reason I brought this up, I just finished reading the Rise of Kiyoshi novel that uh, Gus... And I found in the library uh, in the bonus episode a few weeks back, I finally finished that book. It's about the Earthbender avatar uh, Kiyoshi, the lady who was avatar before Aang. And I gotta say, the book, pretty dang fantastic for a fan of the franchise. Very, you know, it's very YA. It's got a cute teen romance in it. Uh, surprisingly hardcore action uh, segments. Lots of political intrigue. It really paints a picture of wow, this is the world that ended up being in that Hundred Years' War because everybody is just a minimum level of corrupt. Uh, yeah, it's really good. It really gives me flashbacks to my Star Wars novel reading days as a younger teen. So if you're at all interested in reading a book and you happen to be a Last Airbender fan, uh, check out Rise of Kyoshi, and I think there's a sequel, The Shadow of Kyoshi, which I'm going to have to check out eventually. Because uh, the writer, uh, very good. Uh, yeah, it's just a really, really good book. Dang it. Um, yeah, anyway, let's uh, get to the bad stuff in movies. Uh, and by bad stuff, I mean uh, just really, really unpleasant stuff to think about as a movie fan. But we got to talk about it because it's the really big headline of the week. Alec Baldwin is going to be charged with involuntary manslaughter regarding the onset death uh, from that indie western, Rust. Uh, if you remember back back October of 2021, I think it was, very tragic thing happened, uh, and, and the industry lost uh, a valued member. Uh, yeah, everybody who's mentioned her, uh, Helena Hutchins, the, the DP of that picture, she, she definitely is missed. She, she was, uh, she was uh, cool industry professional that everybody seemed to like so it's just a really shitty thing that happened and there's no making it right you know there's no way to make it right now it's too late to make it right it's it's happened and we and we lost somebody and there's no reason we should have lost somebody making a damn movie 
There's no reason to lose anybody making a movie. You hear about stunt people who die on a movie and you're like, damn it, that shouldn't have happened. But it happens with stunts. It definitely shouldn't have happened in this case, though. Uh, but as far as Baldwin being charged with manslaughter, uh, this is the bit where everybody online suddenly becomes a litigator, right? And while I admit I'm no Vincent Gambini myself, it sounds kind of fishy to me. I mean, certainly, that poor fucking actor who accidentally shot Brandon Lee back in the day, he wasn't charged with involuntary manslaughter, was he? And by most people's accounts, it is really not an actor's job to check the prop weapons for safety reasons before rehearsing a scene like he was. That's, I mean, to my understanding, that's what weapons masters, prop masters, set armorers, whatever you want to call them, etc., that's what those people are for. It's why they have a job. It's why, it's why they're a thing. Now, if you want to take this rust... Uh, incident as the reason why real weapons just aren't needed on a Hollywood set at all? Yeah, that's certainly a compelling argument. Not for nothing, but we are coming up on our fourth John Wick movie, and we have nary an accidental firearm discharge to be found on any one of them. Why? Rubber guns and post-production gunshots. Uh, that's just the way the industry has moved. It's, we can do that now. It should probably be that way on all movies. Uh, it certainly, certainly would have made things cheaper, too, on a movie like Rust. An indie movie struggling for money, clearly, because they're hiring, like, skeleton crews. Uh, so I'm not sure why they didn't go that direction. But that's not really what we're talking about. What we're talking about is these charges against Baldwin and, and, and also uh, the armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. The two of them are being charged with involuntary manslaughter in the state of San in the state of New Mexico by the Santa Fe uh, the Santa Fe Attorney General. Uh, meanwhile, Dave Halls, the assistant director of the film, already pled guilty uh, last year to a charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon, and he's getting six months probation for uh, pleading guilty to that. Now, Baldwin's also a producer on the movie, so I could see how in that capacity he might be seen as being culpable for the tragedy in some way, but his other producers aren't being charged. And I mean, clearly they're not going to be charged with manslaughter, they probably can't be because none of them actually touched the firearm, right? There's no way that the Santa Fe District Attorney's Office can make a manslaughter charge stick to anybody who didn't touch the gun, right? So that leaves Baldwin and Reed. Now, keep in mind, I don't particularly like Alec Baldwin. He's clearly kind of a pretty big asshole in general. But my personal belief is that I don't really see how he could be responsible for what happened at a manslaughter level. I mean, certainly, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, in the case of uh, Dave Halls, his charge was uh, his charge was negligent use of a deadly weapon. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, as the assistant director, it kind of fell on him to make sure everything was safe, right? Like, he's the one who possibly hired the person who failed to do so, but in the capacity of being the actor on set, I don't really know how Al Alec Baldwin can be culpable for involuntary manslaughter rather than something like ne criminal negligence or something like that. Um, 
the key phrasing of New Mexico's law on this subject is interesting and, and relevant. Let me just read that. Um, it reads, Involuntary manslaughter consists of manslaughter committed in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to a felony, or in the commission of a lawful act which might produce death in an unlawful manner or without due caution and circumspection. So, uh, let's take that apart for a second. The first half doesn't really apply here. Uh, manslaughter committed in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to felony. That's basically, you know, that's splitting hairs as to is, you know, were you committing a, an unlawful felony when somebody accidentally got killed? Like, reckless driving or something like that, right? That's how reckless driving can lead to involuntary manslaughter. Because you're, you know, if you're drunk driving, that's, you know, that's a way that that could be. The second half of it is the more relevant half, I think, which is uh, a lawful act which might produce death in an unlawful manner, and the key phrase being without due caution or circumspection. Circumspection. Basically stating reckless or negligent behavior leading to the death of a person counts as involuntary manslaughter, even if what you were doing was perfectly lawful. But, I mean, look, I'm only speaking as a former amateur stage actor. I can't really fathom how being handed a prop weapon from the person whose job it is to maintain them and keep them safe, being told that it's a quote-unquote cold gun, meaning that it is not active or loaded or dangerous uh and then being directed to point it at the camera and pull the trigger i'm not sure how that can be considered without due caution or circumspection i know that it's a tiny little movie crew there wasn't an army of people in between baldwin and that gun but in the capacity of his job as the actor it's not his responsibility to check that weapon uh and even if he did, is he qualified to determine whether or not it was safe? Because even if he did check the weapon and decided that it was safe, you can't say that that's reckless or without due caution, but he could still be wrong, right? Because it's not his field. It's not his expertise. He's an actor. He's not necessarily trained to know whether or not the gun was going to go off. It's not his responsibility. So, I don't know. <clears throat> uh, there's already been plenty of court drama surrounding Rust. Uh, last year, Helena Hutchinson, Hutchins' estate filed a wrongful death suit in civil court, and that was settled by the producers. The deal there was that uh, the film would have to be finished, and Hutchins' husband would become an exec producer, and would thusly get a cut of the profits from the movie, a couple gross points or something like that. So, yeah, the craziest thing about all of this, to me, as an outsider just kind of watching the, the nonsense, is I guarantee I'm 100% positive. Had this not happened and everything had gone the way it was supposed to, Rust would have been the most universally ignored movie on the planet. People would not even know it existed. It would be me, who's a Western nut, you know, I like Westerns, and then, like, five other dorky dads or granddads, and then nobody else would even know the movie existed. Now, I feel like this movie is going to be cited as precedent in courtrooms for decades because of this tragedy, and, 
like people are going to remember the movie based solely on this, but legally speaking, they're under legal obligation to finish the movie because that's part of the settlement in the wrongful death civil case. That's weird, right? That's strange. I don't have any judgment uh, to, to make on that other than I, I really think that it's weird that they're charging Baldwin with, with uh, involuntary manslaughter. Uh, th- I feel like they have a better case to charge him with something with something about around negligence and then charge his other, his co-producers on it too. And who knows that might be coming down the pike. I think the, uh, the district attorney did say that more charges were going to be coming for other crew members, meaning probably the other producers and maybe some of the props people, if there were even other props people to to put in the the line of fire. I don't know. But it sucks, right? That whole thing just sucks. And it was totally preventable. Moving right along. Um... In the world of comics, well, we let me let me say this. We talked about Microsoft laying off a bunch of folks. Um, yeah, by the way, I happen to live in the heart of uh, Silicon Forest, as they call it. So I'm part of an Intel family. Several family members work for Intel. And Intel made headlines the last couple of weeks for laying off a sizable percentage of their workforce. So I guess tis the season for heads to roll at big corporations. You know, you get Thanksgiving, you get Christmas, and right after Christmas, they start dropping the axe on people, because that's uh, that's what big corporations do. Amazon did, too. Don't worry about it. Uh, very sadly, Amazon delivered a killing blow to Comixology in the form of laying off pretty much the entire division. At least 75% of the people working on Comixology have been fired. The only people left are reportedly on mop-up duty. Uh, like, it's a skeleton crew that's there until, like, September of this year to basically make sure that everything's in place for it to be switched over to, like, automated or what have you. Um, basically, they're digging their own graves over there, those of them that are still alive. And this, by the way, comes from an article from comicsbeat.com who labeled this whole thing the Comixology Bloodbath. Um, this was a part of the greater Amazon layoff event that happened recently. Uh, you probably read about it. Comixology is in good company with the charity project Smile, who you might have seen headlines about that division uh, when it was absolutely gutted by old Rocket Man himself. Guy can go to space with William Shatner can't afford to keep a charity open or a measly little digital comic book platform. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, uh, it's scary shit. This is really scary for the comic book industry because as we, we all know how rough it has gotten for actual print publishing. It's essentially the, the printing of physical comic books is a write-off for all the companies that are still doing it. They're not making any money off of it. Comixology was at one point the gold standard in digital comics platforms. It was the biggie. And then last year, Amazon basically killed it by dissolving the standalone app and folding the service into the greater Kindle industrial complex, whatever you want to call it. Uh, 
and it become it became so frustratingly unusable that tons of people said, "Well, screw this. I'm I'm unsubscribing." And I'm sure there I'm sure there are some hearing this news who are surprised to hear that Comixology was even still a separate business segment because after last year's giant dump that they took on getting rid of the app, it was pretty much gone already, but this is bad, you know? It's insane. A print medium adapted to a digital landscape, but you can't adapt out of a near monopoly like this one, because there's nowhere to go if the one corporation just lets it all die like this. The only viable platform to access comic books, really, on a mass scale, other than the, the brand-specific ones, you know, Marvel's got their own, DC's got their own, and even those are starting to stagnate, too. But this one, the main one, the one that you can get the most things on, the, the, the big one, is sinking like the Titanic at the moment. And the scariest part is that no one at Amazon seems to give a shit. It's not a moneymaker for them, so they have no real concern. So yeah, another instance of Amazon, which began life as a bookstore, kids, uh, killing off a print medium like a Civil War doctor casually amputating a limb instead of bothering to just operate on it for a couple of minutes. I'm pretty livid about this. This is... I've been a Comixology user since, like, about 2011. Uh, I've got a big collection of back when you could actually own a comic book uh, <laughs> on a digital platform and feel like you own it instead of feeling like it could just go away at any second, even though you paid money for it. Uh, and watching it go from a marvelous new way to support comic book creators to just a steaming pile of trash rotting on Bezos's front lawn, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty apoplectic about it. This is, uh, I feel like this is killing the comic books industry very slowly. It's, it's cancerous, this kind of way of doing things, where you just, oh yeah, we'll, we'll absorb that into our greater digital landscape, and then we'll not do anything about it, not maintain it, fire all the people who did so, and uh, what happens to it? It's going to rot. It's going to rot like a moose carcass. Uh, how many more strangled metaphors can I use to describe this comicsology situation? Because it's real bad. Um, but yeah, um, what, uh, th that's it for comics. I didn't have much beyond that. How much more could I have? But, uh, I know everyone, uh, is, let, let's, uh, let's get into TV. I know everyone else is probably watching The Last of Us, and I'll get to it eventually, but I'll be honest with you, I've had a really rough January, and a show so relentlessly Walking Dead-esque and its hopeless, pessimistic depiction of humanity... I just, I haven't had the stomach for it. I will eventually, but instead I decided to try to lift my spirits. I, I, I binged that 90s show on Netflix. I've been excited about that. You go back and listen to the last couple episodes, you'll know. I've been eagerly anticipating a feel-good sitcom with a lot of nostalgia fingies on it. A lot, a lot of massaging of the nostalgia muscles that I, that I love. And look, I liked it. I did. But I just don't know how else to say this. Netflix has a real problem with sitcoms. I think a big piece of the puzzle here is that sitcoms are not designed to be binged. The greatest of sitcoms are perfect binge material after the fact. You know, people love to do that with The Office, Cheers, News Radio, uh, Night Court, etc. 
And yes, even that 70s show, but none of them were written and produced to be gobbled up all at once. They were week-to-week shows that only became binged in syndication. That 90s show, uh, it's meant to be binged. It only kind of works that way, and I liked it, but I'm easy to please. Uh, the, the real problem is that that, uh, you know, with the binge model, they expect you to watch the pilot and then instantly dive into the next episode without really thinking about the quality factor of what you're watching. Uh, I'll get into that. Let's do a pro and con list really fast so that I can get through it. Uh, pros, Deborah Joe Rupp and Kurtwood Smith are front and center. They have lots to do. They have great jokes. Uh, they have the energy, they're having the fun, they're, it's, it's turned into a really great, uh, retirement gift for the two of them to get at least one season of this, where they're getting paid probably pretty handsomely. Uh, so I'm having fun with that. I expected that much. What I didn't expect was that the new teenagers are actually pretty decent. Namely, the relationships, the character dynamics, actually pretty well shaped for only 10 half-hour episodes. I was impressed. Uh, I cared about the kids by the third or fourth episode. And by the end of it, I was really feeling for them. Uh, It's quite a surprise because I was really worried we were going to get some real Nickelodeon Disney Channel flotsam. But all of them are adorable, honestly. Um, Yeah, some some cons. Uh, Some of the returning cast members from the original show look like they have a gun to their head just out of frame. Really, the pilot episode in particular, just so top-heavy with these cameos, and they all feel very forced. Uh, Exposition about the original characters and where they are now, the ham-fisted introduction of the new characters and their new dynamics, it's it's really a dreadful pilot. It's terrible. Um, And that's, that's what I mean when I say Netflix has a sitcom problem. I didn't get past the pilot for that blockbuster show for a lot of the same reasons. These pilots are in such a hurry to establish the show and get you into the next episode so that you're binging the whole season that the pilots kind of forget to have any jokes. Uh, they're really joyless and mechanical feeling things. They're des- you know they're designed to, to get us to the rest of the season so that Netflix can see their numbers go up. It's awful. And... I'm positive that a lot of people are going to try that 90s show and call it quits after one episode because it's not a flattering start, especially when, like, Topher Grace is there uh, for the pilot and he's giving the worst material possible. Uh, It's really bad jokes that they're putting in his mouth and he's trying his best with them, but I say all of this, but I really like the show. Uh, I'm a really easy mark for 90s nostalgia references, so when a Collective Soul song starts... You know, I almost teared up, and suddenly I felt really damn old. Uh, I actually saw Collective Soul live a few years ago, by the way. They're really good. (laughs) Some of the references are pretty inelegant. There's a very extended Kevin Smith and Clerks riff that should have worked a lot better on me than it did. Uh, There's a really half-assed 90210 riff that feels very close to vintage That 70s Show in terms of celebrity cameo territory like when Charo showed up in the old show and stuff. But it struck me as kind of rote and joyless, you know? Here's the thing. The pilot episode of that 70s show, the kids are driving to Milwaukee to see a Todd Rundgren concert. Now, I was born in 1988, so I watched that and went, who? Todd who? But there's authenticity to that. It actually got me into Todd Rundgren music, oddly enough. 
there was authenticity to the Vista Cruiser being the car. Um, this is kind of appropriate because we are talking about that 70s show, but just like the original Star Wars movies, the show had a lived-in texture to it. That 90s show, being a Netflix production, is kind of missing that. It doesn't feel lived in. It feels artificial. Now, having said that, uncanny artificial in spots. The redecorated Foreman house looks exactly like my family home from the mid-90s. It's crazy. The furniture, the carpet, the remodeled kitchen... Someone in the set design department is a real, real talent. I don't think those people are ever given enough credit. The set dressers. Set dressers? Foley artists. They're amazing artists whose best work, by design, goes unnoticed. So, kudos to them. But, anyway, if you have an unnatural affection for the original show, or you have a lot of 90s nostalgia bug, you know, give it a try. It's pretty cheeseball. In the same way the original was pretty cheeseball. But... I'm kind of fine with that. I'm kind of digging cheeseball stuff as I become a cheeseball older guy. Uh, what else is going on TV? Any, anything? Uh, let me let me check my notes here. Uh, <laughs> that was fake typing. <laughs> What's going on in TV? Well, that Gossip Girl revival got canceled. What was that on HBO Max? So big surprise there. Um... I mean, sure, it's probably prohibitively expensive at this point. I've heard that that Gossip Girl show is uh, a bit pricey, and that's probably why it's not going to find a new home anywhere else. That era of we're going to save this show by it going to someplace else, that's kind of over with, isn't it? That was something that happened from, like, I guess it started with Arrested Development being brought back on Netflix, and it didn't really it didn't really catch on as a mainstream thing of, you know, trading shows like sports leagues will trade players between teams, but, uh, I guess Brooklyn Nine-Nine being moved to an, well, no, no, okay, I'm sorry, I thought Brooklyn Nine-Nine might have been the last time that happened, but that Magnum P.I. revival, that just got moved from CBS to, I want to say NBC, but I'm probably wrong, uh, so it's still happening, but it doesn't really happen with streaming services. You don't get, like, a streaming original like this that, by the way, is a revival of a previous show that gets moved over to a different place. That's not really how it works. So, uh, well, except in, in the case of uh, our next piece of news, which is Cobra Kai. That was a streaming show that got moved to a different streaming channel. Um, Cobra Kai announced a sixth and final season. That's the biggie, is that it's the final season. And, uh, I think that's probably a good thing. That show, I love that show. It's such a treat, but it's the kind of treat that can sometimes leave you with heartburn. You know what I mean? Like, I really enjoy that show for introducing a bunch of new actors that I like and giving new life to a bunch of older actors who kind of thought their time was up, you know? But the narrative has really dried up recently. That that fifth season was a little. Uh, it, it was it we they took it to such a silly place over the last couple of years that I'm kind of fine for it to go on to bigger and better things. Everybody on that show is going to go on to do a, a bunch of great things, I think. So, uh, I'll definitely be tuning in when Cobra Kai season six lands. But uh, until it does, uh. You know, happy trails to those folks. Uh, good, good on you for making a great 
fun, quirky show. Uh, speaking of quirky shows, um, Poker Face, the Ryan Johnson and uh, Natasha Leone mystery 